Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Michael Patrick Cullinane about his study of the posthumous image of America's 26th president, entitled Theodore Roosevelt's Ghost, The History and Memory of an American Icon. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to come on our podcast. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Yeah, sure. So uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, I've, I've been uh, working for about the last eight years on the other side of the pond. Uh, I currently work at the University of Roehampton at London. And I, I think I spent probably the last 10 years researching uh, Theodore Roosevelt. But more broadly, I, I research on American diplomatic history, and I've written about uh, a, n- a number of things in early 20th century uh, U.S. diplomatic uh, history. Um, I'm a stalwart Yankees fan and very excited about the new season, which should be kicking off in the next few months um, with the, the, the home run stars, uh, Stanton and Judge. Um, and uh, and I'm, I, I reject uh, any overtures to get me to watch Premier League football, um, despite being over here for as long as I have. I just can't get into it. That must be quite a challenge considering how big it is over there. <laughs> hey, well, you know yourself, it's the same as American football, as it's called over here. Um, you know, the spectacle of the Saturday here is, is the sort of any given Sunday in America. <laughs> so uh, were you spending that decade researching Theodore Roosevelt working on this book? How exactly did this uh, project come to pass? Well, I actually devised the project when I was a PhD student. I was working my, my PhD research was on the American anti-imperialist movement. I was fascinated by this huge movement of Americans, you know, probably more than a hundred thousand activists who were resisting American empire and imperialism during the early, really the first ten years of the twentieth century, um, and I, I suppose Theodore Roosevelt was, in many ways, the 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 nemesis of the anti-imperialist movement because he kind of represented this large policy in America's uh, expanding interests in the world. But the reality was is that most of these anti-imperialists really liked Theodore Roosevelt. You know, people that disagreed with him viscerally on some things um, could also have no problem going out to dinner with the guy, enjoying his company. And I found him a really complicated character, and and that that drove me to. Uh, to to research him more. And I I, I didn't like him at the beginning. Actually, I thought he was an imperialist and a sort of warmonger. And then you read more about the guy and suddenly these nuances come out of nowhere and you're you're struck by his intellect and uh, and his his achievements. And so what what that led me to was a, a question about what I could what I could research regarding Theodore Roosevelt, what would be new? And there are currently, a rough estimate, about 350 biographies in the past 100 years, big biographies that have been written about Theodore Roosevelt. And so I thought, well, I, I can't write another biography. And there's hundreds of other monographs that deal with individual topics, you know, whether it's his relationship with Japan or the Russo-Japanese War or uh, Venezuela, whatever it might be. Uh, so I, I thought this has all been done. I mean, this guy's life has been covered. And so I thought the one thing that hadn't been covered, I think, uh, Edmund Morris's final volume of his uh, trilogy of Roosevelt had come out in 2010. And there was about nine pages dedicated to Roosevelt's death and legacy. And I thought, well, this is something that hasn't really been covered. So I got to work on figuring out how Roosevelt had been depicted, used and abused over the last 100 years. I find your description fascinating because it uh, really is something that that there are aspects of what you're describing that really uh, show up very clearly in the book. Because as you explain, there is this uh, very 
uh, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, is a very complicated figure. And so much of that complexity pl- uh, plays out in how he is remembered over successive decades. And as you start the book, it begins you know, with the moment of his death. If, from that very moment, people are beginning to argue, what does Theodore Roosevelt mean and what is his legacy going to be? And for many people, it's like there's a a, 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 a cafeteria of things to choose from in terms of trying to figure that out for themselves. I think that's a good way of describing it. It's a smorgasbord of, um, of, of legacy themes. When Roosevelt dies in 1919, it's, it, it comes out of nowhere. I mean, he had been sick for, uh, for a number of months and been hospitalized, in fact. But no one expected him to, to disappear off the political scene, you know, off the face of the earth. Uh, and when, when he does die, there's this outpouring of tribute. People that um, had fought with him during, you know, during his time as president or indeed before and after that um, had come out to revere you know, at least his stamina, if not, um, if not his politics. Um, but the, the interesting thing that happens in, in those moments after he dies is that uh, sort of trying to capture the essence of this man is impossible. It's like a bar of soap slipping out of your hands. Every time you think you have it, it's gone. And one of my favorite stories was um, James Earl Frazier, the famous sculptor, um, cast a death mask of Theodore Roosevelt moments after he died. Uh, and, you know, this is literally cast from his face. And when people saw it, they looked at it and they just dismissed it as, as nothing like the man that they knew. That somehow even the death mask couldn't capture him. And so at his funeral, which was quite... Uh, austere conservative event. There was no singing. There was no eulogy. Um, and he's buried in a, a plot of land in, you know, in Long Island, which is you know, not, not on the beaten path. People at that funeral started to say, well, maybe we should memorialize him in some other way, because although we know him and we know how important he was, uh, future generations, based on the funeral, based on the gravesite, would have no idea that this is a man who had such a considerable influence on the American experience. One of the things that really comes out in those first years is just how large he loomed contemporaries. And you, you mentioned uh, the, the the famous uh, uh, sculpture on, on Mount Rushmore. And I, I find that that really captures the sense as to how people in the 1920s saw him, that he was that giant that ranked up there. And it was so much of it was a question of how do you properly, uh, you know, commemorate or remember or memorialize this person who seemed to be the first truly, you know, uh, you know, greater, you know, inarguably great president since Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point you make about the 1920s being this this period of great importance. Uh, I think that what I found from the research was that those first years in terms of memorial activity are vital. They define the next 100 years. In fact, the first couple of months almost define it. There's a meeting of um, the sort of the memorializers are going to there's a group of female memorializers called the Women's Memorial Association, and there's a group of men. I, for a number of reasons, they, they wound up segregate, segregating themselves. Uh, there were real differences about how they wanted to memorialize Roosevelt. But collectively, I make the case that there was five themes that they came up with. 
And they, they, they don't sound kind of the same as they would in the 21st century as they did at the beginning of the 20th. So the first one that they all believed in was this idea of Americanism, which isn't a really a term that we use. Uh, but it, it came to embody ideas of patriotism, civic, the civic virtues of the American system, democracy, and, and all that sort of things. But also some kind of, you know, not so nice aspects either. It was a anti-communist movement. It was a kind of anti-immigrant movement as well. And so what, what I make this case in the book is that all of these memorial themes have two sides to them. And they're also interrelated. So I mentioned there was five. Americanism is only one of them. And there's, it's got that latent dualism in it. The second one is um, really around um, this cowboy image. Roosevelt is a cowboy, and in the one instance, there's the the virtuous cowboy, the one who's you know crusading to uh, make this uh, make 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 the world a better place, and you know um, kind of lives up to a lot of those American ideals of the cowboy myth. And on the flip side of that, there's sort of the hasty cowboy, uh, the one who's living on the edge of barbarism and civilization. Uh, I think that's best embodied by what Marcus Hanna said about Roosevelt. He called him that damned cowboy. Um, so there's those two. And obviously the cowboys wrapped up with the American experience. So, so that fits in with the previous theme. The third theme is the progressive. Um, Roosevelt certainly was a progressive, even if he hadn't ran as a progressive in 1912. He had a long history of progressive reform, uh, political pro- progressive reform. And But again, there's the flip side, you know, the, the, the one that's progressing society to a better place. The flip side, the sort of radical uh, progressive, which some people viewed him as. Uh, that ties in really with his ideas about conservation, the fourth theme. The conservation theme also has a latent dualism between you know, preserving land for future, generation, future generations. But even in the debates that we have today about resource usage, there's this question about are we serving the best uh, the business interests and, um, and economic interests. So there's a balance there between those two sides. And finally, the last theme that I, I made a case for was this preacher of righteousness. Because what, as I was doing the research, what I found out is that Roosevelt was actually an incredibly religious person. And I think that that also couples nicely with how we, we, we have to see him, which is as a, a great publicist. He, you know, the bully pulpit, this idea of the presidency being this staging ground for shifting public opinion, that very terminology began with Theodore Roosevelt. So, um, you know, whether it's his, his, the 50 books that he wound up publishing or the uh, hundreds of thousands of letters that, that, that he sent to people around the United States and around the world, um, Roosevelt was a publicist and, and a deeply religious one at that. So all in all, the, the book makes this case that there are these five themes, and they, they completely come out of the, the first 10 years of memorial uh, practices and activities. And it is from different constituencies that they develop. So, for example, Theodore Roosevelt's good friend and the first head of the U.S. Forestry Service, Gifford Pinchot, later governor of Pennsylvania, he says at one of these meetings that we can memorialize him in a number of ways, but for Pinchot, it was Roosevelt, the conservationist. That is the thing that spoke to him. And uh, and and say, for example, Herman Hagedorn, who was uh, one of the directors of the Roosevelt Memorial Association and a poet and a writer and uh, uh, an advocate of, an, of Americanism, Herman Hagedorn um, really wanted to focus on Roosevelt's patriotism. And he does that throughout his time as director. Hagedorn will serve as director from the 1920s all the way into the 1950s. So these early 20s are fundamental, and the, the memorials that develop 
be it things like Mount Rushmore, which is, starts uh, becoming a reality in 1926, or whether it's other memorials, they really stem from the the agents of memory, these people that were Roosevelt's contemporaries that had a vested interest in promoting the things that he could be affiliated with. That uh, that phrase, vested interest, I think is especially important when you're talking about this period of, uh, of Roosevelt's afterlife because it's a time at which a lot of people are tied to him. And this gets to this very fascinating struggle that you describe between the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's and the Hyde Park Roosevelt's that has this huge political saliency for uh, Americans in the 1920s, 1930s especially, and, and, and well into the 1940s. Yeah, so this is a family that, I mean, everyone knows Franklin, Eleanor, and Theodore. And I can't tell you how many events that I've been to where, where we've, we've talked about those three personalities, largely at the expense of the rest of the family. This is an incredible family that goes well beyond these three personalities. Even uh, I met Ken Burns at an event in the U.S. Embassy in London, and I, I asked him about, because he has that 14-hour-long uh, documentary, The Roosevelts. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you think there could have been more time for the other Roosevelts? And, and he was convinced that, you know, he probably could have spent another 14 hours on the other Roosevelts. Um, but the, the, the really important um, character, I think, for the book um, and for really for um, Theodore Roosevelt's legacy is Ted, his son, um, because he has a really um, conflicted relationship with his cousin Franklin, who, of course, eventually becomes president. But Ted was, uh, in the eyes of the Oyster Bay clan, which is the Long Island Roosevelt's, of which Theodore Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt are members of, um, the, um, that group saw Ted uh, as being the, the namesake, as the one who was going to uh, lead in the footprints of, of his father, Theodore. Um, Eleanor, when she marries Franklin, she sees in Franklin very much the, the personality that can the, – the charismatic personality that can lead in those footprints. And Franklin sees himself in that way too. So when Franklin runs for vice president in 1920, you know, only a year after his cousin Theodore is dead, people remember that name intimately. And they don't know this guy, this young guy, Franklin, who's running for vice president. You know, he was assistant secretary of the Navy before he got the nomination. And when he goes to travel around in the West, particularly, his advance uh, man, um, Stephen Early, tells Franklin, use the name. And what Franklin begins to do is adapt his language to sound more like Theodore. He says things like bully and delighted at rallies. And he looks kind of like him. He's got a pince-nez and he's, um, uh, his, you know, he throws his fists up in the air. He doesn't um, forcefully tell reporters that he's not a Roosevelt from that line of the family. And that begins to irritate the Oyster Bay clan, who what happens after that is that Ted effectively follows Franklin around on his 1920 campaign, telling him or telling the public that uh, Franklin doesn't bear the hallmark of the Roosevelt family. It's he's not the same Roosevelt. But the reality is, is most people know that. I mean, the electorate isn't isn't stupid. They know that this guy isn't Theodore. So that relationship between Theodore and uh, – sorry, Ted and Franklin, uh, really the animosity between the two of them sparks uh, interfamily war of words. 
and, uh, and uh, yeah, a number of grievances that that go on f- and really until the 1980s. But the, the 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 thing that really challenges that relationship comes in the 1920s when the Teapot Dome uh, controversy scandal that breaks out during the Harding administration uh, is going to taint Ted's. Um, Ted's character. Although after Teapot Dome, Ted will run for governor. Uh, he fails miserably to oust. He has no chance of beating Al Smith in that election. And he never runs for office after 1924. So um, the 20s see the decline of the Oyster Bay family. And really after, you know, despite catching polio in 1920 uh, and being out of, out of politics for about four years, Franklin Roosevelt, by the end of that decade, is completely in the ascendancy. Uh, him and his, his wife are, are transforming New York, uh, and they are, by 1932, uh, you know, the, Franklin is the, 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 the most likely choice for president at that stage. So um, this is something that, that goes on, though. When Franklin is president, Ted and Franklin don't see eye to eye on the New Deal. Um, Ted sees it very much as uh, the, the unnecessary growth of the welfare state. Um, Alice Roosevelt, who is Theodore's oldest daughter, uh, famously, you know, when uh, Franklin takes the currency off the gold standard, she famously appears at a at a gala draped in gold uh, to try and you know kind of make her own form of protest. In fact, she she never uh, she never um, gets over that that animosity of the 1920 election. Ted, uh, in once the war starts, once World War II is in full swing, he sort of um, he sort of gets behind Franklin, and they put aside their differences. Um, Ted famously makes uh, makes his way to the beaches at Normandy um, and w- wins the Medal of Honor posthumously. Um, but it's it's without question that Franklin is really the person that takes the Theodore Roosevelt legacy into the next generation. And although some historians have said that Franklin eclipses Theodore Roosevelt and you know that he's forgotten, I think that's that's wrong. I, I actually think that. Because of Franklin, Theodore Roosevelt becomes more nuanced. He gains more more sides almost, and uh, and now later generations are able to claim a sort of um, a heritage of the Roosevelt heritage that is followed through by Franklin. And that's one of the things that makes that struggle so interesting because it so much of it was an argument about what Theodore Roosevelt meant. Franklin Roosevelt very you know, famously uh, you know, tied himself to Theodore Roosevelt, not just with the things you mentioned, but also with, for example, the very idea of the New Deal, which harkened back to Theodore Roosevelt's square deal. So, Rose, so Franklin's hitching himself to, as you described, to this, uh, this Rooseveltian, that aspect of Theodore Roosevelt's legacy. And yet you have the Oyster Bay Roosevelts who are fuming at the, at, at what so many of them see as the unwanted hijacking of what their father meant. Well, I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I take it a step further. It's it's not only uh, Franklin who's kind of co-opting Theodore, but it is a whole generation of people that see Theodore Roosevelt, the progressive. And I mean, really, in 1912, that election in 1912 transformed the political system in the United States so 
completely that uh, really um, I think we're, we're you know until 1968 it was the same political cycle. You had the these the Republican Party could have been in power probably uh, you know for for years to come, but R- Roosevelt represents this Theodore Roosevelt represents this major break where you've got a progressive brand and a conservative brand within the Republican Party. Now within that progressive band, which of course splits in 1912 and Roosevelt runs as the bull moose candidate. Within that brand, there are people like Rex Tugwell, Adolf Fairley, the people that will become the brain trust effectively in Franklin Roosevelt's first administration. And it's those people this – is, this is the interesting story I think in the book is that the agents of Theodore Roosevelt's memory are very much the ones that – um, that that worked with him in those on those early campaigns for things like universal health care, women's suffrage, uh, direct elections of senators, and and they they become implanted in Franklin Roosevelt's administration. Harold Dix, he's another really good example. Um, uh, so the, and the list goes on and on. And yet, at the very time that you're seeing this, uh, what you describe as your know, Franklin Roosevelt in, in effect. Uh, maintaining and, and cementing so much of, of, of Theodore Roosevelt's image, there seems to be a tailing off of, of the memorialization. You describe, for example, the effort in the 1920s to restore the brownstone, to put a monument uh, on the mall uh, near the title pool, and, and, and so much of that seems to tail off. And, and, and with you have all these books being written, but then Henry Pringle comes out with his uh, book in, I think it was 1931, and after that, you, you stop seeing major biographical studies of Theodore Roosevelt. So there, there does seem to be this ebbing of this initial burst of attempts to uh, memorialize and remember Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, it does. It swings in roundabouts. And ebb and flow is a really good way of putting it because actually you do have these moments of mass memorialization where and, – and often in a very monolithic way. So Theodore Roosevelt in the 1920s appears as a saint. You know, The biographies are hagiographies. The memorial – the memorials that uh, that develop uh, are are almost uh, one dimensional. There's no complexity there, which, as you as we said from the beginning of this podcast, that this is a very complex character. So it's ironic that in the early iterations of his legacy, he's very one sided. But take for example the uh, the brownstone that you mentioned on uh, 20th East 20th Street in Manhattan, which is where Roosevelt was born. Um, but it, it's a replica building. The building that was there original, well, before they had rebuilt this memorial, was a commercial building. Uh, in fact, Theodore Roosevelt never wanted uh, uh, the home to be rebuilt there. There was, a, there was when he was president, the original home was still there, and uh, he sanctioned it being knocked down. He didn't want any memorial of that kind whatsoever. And what I what I found really interesting about the in all the paperwork and all the the paper trails, the women Memor- the women's memorial association that built that wanted to build this site to teach immigrants how to become good Americans. This was very much a 1920s project to uh, to to root out communism during the Red Scare. And to ensure that uh, New York society was, uh, you know, that, that the, the the poor and the immigrant classes that were coming into New York, that they were they were becoming good citizens effectively. Now, what that does is it immediately dates the project. You know, the, the Red Scare is more or less over by 1921, 22. Um, you know, immigration begins to tail off by 1924 when you see the introduction of a quota system. So the purpose of that site 
it almost loses meaning by the end of the 1920s. Now, interestingly, the men, the, 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 the men's Roosevelt Association, they recognized that. And they, they basically set up a system by which there will be no political memorials. And they, they want to create a memorial in Washington, D.C. that is going to be artistic. It's going to be easily interpretable. Actually, like most of the memorials in D.C. are, you rarely find a memorial that it doesn't have some sort of artistic um, interpretive uh, part of it. You know, Think about the Washington's Monument or Lincoln's Temple or even Jefferson's Memorial, which originally was designed as a memorial to Theodore Roosevelt. So that site the Tidal Basin, uh, which is just south of uh, Washington's monument, that site was the last vacant spot in Pierre L'Enfant's plan for Washington, D.C., which um, your listeners will probably know that it was a shape of a cross, and it is today. You know, The National Mall runs in the shape of a cross. So this was the last spot, and in, in that way, it was a very sacred space uh, for Washington, D.C. Um, and the Roosevelt Memorial Association uh, – pursued a design competition and, and ran a design competition to come up with some plan for that that site. And there was something like you know 12 or 13 um, architects or landscape artists that put into this design competition and they had they had a winner and the winner was John Russell Pope, who was at that stage the foremost uh, Beaux Arts style architect, um, you know known for many different memorials around Washington DC today. Um, and what John Russell Pope had laid out was this huge, vast plaza with uh, two 150-column semicircular colonnades, uh, a centerpiece that was a 300-foot-tall uh, geyser that um, that was decorated by naval um, sculptures, and it was it was huge. I mean, it would have dwarfed the Washington Monument. It would have dwarfed Lincoln's Temple. It was completely out of touch with um, the sort of the context of the time. I mean, Roosevelt at that stage had only been dead for a couple of years. And what they're proposing is the most audacious um, presidential memorial on the mall. It would have put him uh, next to Lincoln and Washington. It would have looked like the trio of greats at a time when people weren't yet sure. And I think really for me, what I thought torpedoed the efforts was the fact that Woodrow Wilson died in 1924 just as these plans are starting to take off. So you've got Roosevelt's great rival uh, passing away and sort of people begin to go, well, you know, maybe, maybe he doesn't belong in this sacred space. And the, Democrat, the Democrats in Congress start to push back against this, um, the plans. And really by the end of the decade, there was, you know, this was not going to come off. And so, you know, you're, you're right. And putting it in that framework, you've got at the end of the day, the beginning of the 30s, you've got Henry Pringle's biography, which is a complete revision. And Roosevelt is now a juvenile, an adolescent who's too hasty and uh, only out for himself, a raging ego. We see in 10 years a completely different person. So you were describing this as taking place in waves. When does that second uh, wave of memorialization uh, uh, appear? Well, during the 1930s, I think you have you have some memorialization that's happening. I mean, Mount Rushmore is 
sort of, I mean, it, the plan was there and that's coming to fruition. Um, and then you've got Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt Island uh, actually gets bought in the 1930s, which is where his memorial is today, uh, just uh, just west of the, the Lincoln Memorial in the Potomac. So there's, there's things happening. In fact, the American Museum of Natural History, which is so controversial uh, last year because it was red paint splashed across Theodore Roosevelt's statue in front of that, that came uh, online. I think that was that was finished by 1936. So there's stuff happening. But I think the thing about the 1930s and really the 1940s is, is that the image of Theodore Roosevelt is, is in decline because of biographers, because of theater productions, things like um, Arsenic and Old Lace come out uh, in theater and then later on in the 40s as a film, a Frank Capra film. And Roosevelt appears like the Pringle portrait. He's very um, boisterous, loud, and juvenile. It's not really until the 1950s, uh, after the publication of Theodore Roosevelt's Letters, which is an eight-volume, 20,000 letters published by Harvard University Press, Historians start getting a new look at Roosevelt, and it's from that point on in the 1950s that um, cultural productions start to reflect this more nuanced image of Roosevelt. Some of the the stuff from the 1920s mixed with some of the stuff from the 1930s and 40s. Um, And as a result, um, you see – well, I mean in the 19 – I think that the context is important here as well. Nationalism is in full swing again. The Cold War is causing Americans to think about Americanism again. And so a figure like Theodore Roosevelt is suddenly a lot more attractive. And so there's a new wave in the 1950s to uh, memorialize Roosevelt in in D.C. And there's new plans that emerge as well. Wave of scholarship that really endures. You mentioned Howard Beale's book. There's uh, John Morton Blum's Republican Roosevelt. And, and, and with, with the letters, as you described, it really does open up this wave of, uh, of, of scholarly attention as to his legacy. And as you described, the, the, the uh, associations are beginning to evolve as well as they're beginning to uh, undergo uh, leadership changes and they're beginning to uh, consider the, their role in terms of perpetuating Roosevelt's legacy beyond just the memorials that they've spent the past generation trying to erect. Yeah, I have to say, if we're if we're looking at the historians, my favorite is Richard Hofstadter, and I I, I love Hofstadter's work for so many reasons. I mean, I, you know, I wish I could write like him. He's got an incredible um, mind for writing and for picking out, uh, you know, what what's important at a certain time and what's. What's great about his first book, which is the political tradition book, you know, the uh, American political tradition he writes in 1948. I mean, this is this is, you know, his great work in many ways. But when he when he publishes that Roosevelt in that is the Pringle Roosevelt. He's tempestuous. He's um, he's angry and loud. And actually, I think in that book, Hofstadter <laughs> calls him a Mussolini light. You know, this is the guy who kind of. Yeah, he's a he's he's on the borderline of fascism and democracy. Um, but interestingly, that um, that view changes because, of course, in 1954, all of the letters are published. The first round of those letters that I mentioned um, are published in 1951, but the last book is 
published in 1954. And Hofstadter's impression changes remarkably. So his book uh, that comes out in uh, 51, 52, The Age of Reform. Uh, in this, Roosevelt gets a slightly revised look. He's not as uh, egotistical. He may have had some good ideas in terms of progressive reform. Well, by the time anti-intellectualism, one of Hofstadter's books in the 60s comes out, Roosevelt's actually a pretty – he comes out pretty well in that and you know he's he was a, an important leader for the progressive movement and for intellectualism in general in America. And, and all of this is down to Hofstadter's view of, uh, of, of Roosevelt through the letters. He actually didn't – because Hofstadter was a, an intellect who, who read voraciously but, but actually didn't do the archival work that someone like Henry Pringle did on, on someone like Roosevelt. So being able to refer to these letters meant that people could read – Roosevelt from his own um, from his own notes from his own voice and what we what we see is a very a nuanced person we get the John Morton Bloom Republican Roosevelt we get the the the, the diplomat and statesman that Howard K Beale gave us um, and then you know George Mowry as well and, and and others gave us this very progressive Roosevelt in the tradition of a Wilson and an FDR. So it's an important moment. It doesn't last very long, however, because uh, that consensus history that came out in the 1950s, um, you know, didn't didn't last. Um, and and really, by the by the time the Vietnam War is kicking off, there's there's another decline in Roosevelt's reputation, and it's largely because uh, you know the anti-war movement and the you know the Vietnam War is proving that. American intervention is as um, complicated, risky, bloody, murderous as it was during Roosevelt's time. And you, know, you can hearken back to the Spanish-American War and the atrocities in the Philippines, and they map on very closely to those same atrocities and the, wars, uh, the, the war in Vietnam. So you know, things like the, the Morrow Massacre, in which Leonard Wood massacres women and children in Mindanao in the Philippines, maps very closely onto, say, the Malay Massacre in Vietnam. And what you have is people... Uh, people rethinking America, America's place in the world in 19, 19, the late 1960s, and the reference point for that is very much um, is very much Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, my 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 PhD project on the anti-imperialists, people people only went back and started looking at anti-imperialism in the 1960s when the Vietnam War was uh, really sort of um, troubling people. So I think that's that's our that's the second decline. But interestingly, that decline doesn't last very long either. So it really by the 1980s, uh, the, the Reagan revolution and the, uh, the resurgence in American patriotism brings Theodore Roosevelt back to the fore. Although Reagan doesn't quote Roosevelt very much because, of course, Reagan can't really get his head around Roosevelt's progressivism. Um, he does do things like uh, support Caspar Weinberger. The, Weinberger's um, – he's a defense secretary. His plans to have to, – to name a, an aircraft carrier after Theodore Roosevelt, which is you know, obviously a great expression of American power in the world and something I'm sure Theodore Roosevelt would have uh, enjoyed. Um, but but you you know by that time the 1980s comes around um, Roosevelt his image is is changing with the times. It's not really until the 19, 1990s that he becomes a truly bipartisan figure. Um, I think for me for the, it's just that so much time has elapsed and he's so nuanced. By the 1990s, 
you have documentaries where Bill Clinton and Carl Rove are talking about how much they admire Theodore Roosevelt. Um, you've got Dick Gephardt um, saying in his um, uh, in his run for, for president how he wants to be a, a Theodore Roosevelt progressive. And you've got George W. Bush um, putting a um, – uh, a painting of, of Theodore Roosevelt behind him in the Oval Office. So he becomes he becomes something for everybody at that stage. We've been describing these uh, the, these uh, surges and recessions in terms of Roosevelt's standing, and yet there's an aspect that you also address in your book in which he never really does seem to fade, and that's in popular culture. And yeah, I was. Uh, you you uh, point out how the, the second that that revival that takes place in the 1950s comes at a time when you you start to see uh, uh, television uh, becoming more important, and he starts appearing as characters in various westerns, and you start to see that projecting this image of him to a whole generation for whom Theodore Roosevelt is as alive as, say, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. This is the generation who knows him only as a historical figure, and yet they're getting it not just in terms of these books, but in terms of his image on coffee cans, his image uh, on, on television and so forth. Yeah, I have to say that was, the most, that was the most enjoyable part of the research, was being able to watch movies and television for hours on end. Uh, and, and it was research. It was fantastic. But um, the, the Westerns are the most telling. And I, I understand why people have written so extensively about Westerns, the, the metaphors in them and the, um, the turns in the, the narrative. They're so closely related to the American experience. Uh, and, and actually, Westerns are so pervasive in that post-war period. In the 50s and 60, 60s, I think there's a statistic in the book that comes from uh, Richard Slotkin's work on, on, uh, on the West and on, on Western uh, presentations. Um, Nearly a third of all outputs from uh, from studios were westerns. Uh, you know, in, in like a fifteen year period, it sustained. You know, the western was the way that people were digesting this new world. You know, John Ford's movies were as much about Apaches as they were about communists. Uh, the stories mapped so closely together, and Roosevelt. Uh, has a slightly different um, appearance in television as as he does in 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 the cinema, but in movies he um, he was he was often the the statesman who also had this backstory as a rough rider. So the the example I, I like to give about the, the the movie that best exemplifies this is a movie called um, uh, In Old Oklahoma, where John Wayne. Um, is uh, he, he kind of um, stumbles upon this town that's in real trouble. It's got this plutocratic, um, plutocratic oil baron who's trying to take possession of all the land. And uh, as, as, the, as the good guy, John Wayne, comes in and says, well, actually, you know, we could do this collectively. And, and there's a big standoff that ends in the White House where you've got the, the oil baron and John Wayne knocking on the door of Theodore Roosevelt to settle the dispute. And wouldn't it wouldn't it happen? But Theodore Roosevelt knows John Wayne. Uh, his name is Daniel Summers in the movie. But anyway, uh, he knows Daniel Summers from back in the days in the Rough Riders. And he says to, to to Daniel Summers, he says, you know, I trust you. You were you were you were the best Rough Rider. And if you think you can pull this off, then you've got it. But you've got this amount of time 
And uh, if you don't pull it off, the, the oil and the land goes to this oil baron. Well, of course, you know, he pulls it off last minute. You know, the oil baron and his trickery didn't, you know, didn't win the day. Um, but it's very much a story about, you know, fairness, progressive politics, but also this reference to the American spirit and the can-do attitude. And that, that comes out in almost all of the films uh, during the 1950s and even the early 1960s. You even see it in in in, in the nineteen seventies with, with with the most you know famous depiction of that decade, which was the Wind of the Lion, which is as you point out, it is a very different Roosevelt, and yet still exemplifies that notion of can do and with Theodore Roosevelt, you know, leading the charge as uh, in that process. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. The, the one difference I would say about uh, the the westerns is that uh, they're not tongue in cheek. The Wind of the Lion, which comes out in nineteen seventy four, is it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. You, you kind of question this uh, uh, American can-do spirit a little bit. And let me explain why. That, that movie actually was released, coincidentally, uh, the week of the Maegas incident in, uh, in Cambodia, which was the, sort of the final moment of, the, final, uh, moment of the, the Vietnam War, if you will, I think, anyway. And this is where American soldiers are taken hostage by the Cambodians, and Gerald Ford needs to decide uh, you know, if he's going to intervene or not. It mapped on very closely to the film, which was about American intervention in Morocco. But the, the, the great thing about that is that none, th- there was no intervention in Morocco. The film is a complete farce. It's anachronistic. Uh, in fact, it's a, well, it's a story about Ion Perticaris, a Greek-American uh, Greek who gets kidnapped by uh, this Moroccan bandit called Mouli al-Razuli, who's you know, got, a, got a, you know, a royal heritage. Um, in the film, the... Uh, the Moroccan bandit is Sean Connery, so Scottish accent versus what would be some sort of Moroccan accent, I guess. Um, and then the, the Ion Perticaris, who's supposed to be a fat, bald Greek man, is Candace Bergen. Uh, you know, blonde, <laughs> you know, beautiful hair. And yeah, I mean, it couldn't be any more different. So um, in any case, I think the, the role that um, Brian Keith plays in the film is Roosevelt is very much tongue-in-cheek, in which he, he makes a couple of soliloquies in the, in the film about American power, and he compares the United States to a bear who's blind and reckless, but ultimately you know, has good intentions. Whereas the films in the 1950s, they don't have that nuance. You know, they, they're very much um, America's role in the world is only a positive one, and it's, you know, it's saving the world from, from communism and bringing democracy to benighted peoples. How has Theodore Roosevelt endured as an American icon then? I mean, is it because he is so nuanced because we can always find uh, Theodore Roosevelt for the times? Or is it just because he was such a larger than life personality that he just stands out compared to so many other figures uh, who occupy the presidency who are much more uh, limited, controlled, not quite as as as, as bombastic or, or flamboyant? Well, uh I mean, yeah, I mean, he's certainly a, a huge personality. You, you couldn't ignore him. I mean, I know that um, his I think it was his daughter who famously said he wants to be the bride at every uh, wedding, the corpse at every funeral and the baby at every christening. I mean, that, I think that <laughs> probably was the case. Um, and that that's led but that's led to uh, him publicizing himself. I, I said he's a great publicist. Um but it's – I think for me it's the – you know, you mentioned ebb and flow. I think it is that sort of um, – that rhythm of change that his legacy has undergone. So you know, he wasn't right as this perfect saint. He also wasn't right as this juvenile delinquent. 
you know, somewhere in between. We tinkered with that from, say, the 1950s to the 1990s. You know, that seems probably closer, but he's such a complex character that you can never really get a handle on him. And I think in some cases, people, well, I know in some cases, people have completely given up trying to find a truth in Theodore Roosevelt. In fact, I make the case in the book that really, it, since probably the 2000s, the 21st century, he doesn't, you know, those legacy themes are still there, but actually you can dispense with them entirely. And there's a Roosevelt meaning for everyone in an everlasting kind of way. So um, let me give you an example, I guess. Um, in 2015, only a couple of years ago, Cadillac ran this integrated, um, integrated campaign for, uh, for its cars. Um, so integrated in the sense that there was an internet ad, a television ad, a radio ad, and a print ad. And, um, and what they did is, is they, they just quoted uh, a Theodore Roosevelt, a famous quote from his speech, uh, 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 the Man in the Arena speech, which was a uh, 1910 speech that he gave at the Sorbonne in France. But, you know, the famous line that a lot of people know is, it's not the critic who counts, it's the man who's actually in the arena, right? And that's something that, you know, presidents have used. I mean, Miley Cyrus has a tattoo of it on her arm. Um, but Cadillac, what they did is they just they just quote this. They just quote it uh, as the car goes by on the TV or uh, over uh, over the sounds of streams on the radio or in the inter internet camp campaigns. And you know that you know the quote from somewhere, but you can't quite put your finger on it. And and the the, the tagline for Cadillac is "Dare greatly." Now that is that's the line from from this speech, this man in the arena speech, and. That's the thing about Roosevelt. I think that people, they, they know that this is him. They have an idea that this is him. But now he's become almost so ubiquitous that we use these, these words that are related to him. I said bully pulpit earlier. We could, we could say other words like, um, uh, like uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. I know he quoted that that was an African proverb, but I've yet to find any African proverb that uses it. Uh, you know, this guy created uh, a new political system. He, uh, he, he started conversations that we still haven't finished having. And so I think because of that, he becomes, he becomes very compelling. Everyone can draw something from his legacy, find something that relates to them. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, right. Well, um, I, I, I could sort of want to turn my hand back to the diplomatic history a bit more, and, uh, but also keep my hand in the, the sort of memory field, I guess, as well. Um, what, I, what I'd like to work on next is uh, these networks of power. And I, I suppose the research on Roosevelt, um, which really isn't about Roosevelt, it's about all these other actors, memorializers. And what I found with that was, was that um, often we're not telling their story. We're not telling the story of Herman Hagedorn or, um, you know, or you know the, the people that are behind all these memorials. We're talking about the people themselves. But actually, I'm, I'm fascinated by the networks of power in diplomatic history and not only what they accomplish, but also what they – who they exclude. I think what you find in diplomatic history is often the story of um, a lot of white men. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting what's 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 not there and, you know, the, the voices of women and minorities. And so I, I'd like to work on this project that uh, kind of takes apart some of these networks of power. Well, it sounds like a very interesting project. Uh, Mike, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Right. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>